Um, so yeah, last year I lived um, in like student accommodation in halls and um, I was the only Christian in my flat and um, I remember in the morning of um, our semester two exam last year, um, everybody's obviously feeling the pressure and you know as medical students, um, to get into med school anyway you would have had really good grades and um, you, would have have, you would have this natural hard work and sort of work ethic and um, yeah, everyone's just feeling the pressure of wanting to continue in that and to continue doing well. And I remember my, one of my flatmates was visibly quite panicky and stressed. And, and she asked me why I was showing no signs of stress even. And I, and I think I took that as an opportunity to, to point her to Jesus and say, Hey, look, um, I've revised what I can and I've done my part and I'm trusting God to do the rest. Um, I'm trusting God to help me in the exam and to help me remember what I've, what I've revised. And, and I offered, I was like, can I, can I pray with you um, about your exam? And, and she said yes, and that, that made me really happy. But it was just nice to sit in, in the kitchen, in the halls, um, with my non-Christian friend and pray over her and ask God to, to give her peace and to um, help her in her exam. And, and after we pray for her to say, I feel better, like to see the visible difference in just her behavior for the rest of that morning. And, and I think um, that's one way as students we really can be witnesses, um, is in the way we are, the way we behave, the way we respond to the situations around us. Um, instead of letting things overwhelm us, we have a hope, we have something to cling on to, and that is Jesus. And he says that if we trust in him, then he'll help us. And I think people will see that and be like, okay, yeah, there's something different about these people. They, they respond differently, they react differently, they act differently, why is that? And, and instead of just, you know, just passing it aside or giving any excuse, we can say, hey, you know what, Jesus says that we can trust in, in him with everything and, and he will help us. And, and I, I've, I've had, other than that, I've had lots of opportunities to actually put that into action, you know, um, use my faith um, as an explanation of why I am the way I am, why I treat people the way I treat people. And, and obviously living with the same girls that I, I lived with last year is actually a blessing to know that, hey, I have something which I'm really excited about and here's one way I can, I can share it with them by loving them, by um, washing off any dirty dishes that I see around and just, just you know, not expecting anything in, in return. And, and people notice these little things and, and it makes them wonder. They might not even say it to you, they might just think quietly to themselves, you know, there's something about her or him that is different, you know. And one day they will, they will ask and you'll um, be presented with the perfect opportunity to say, hey, it's Jesus. Jesus is the reason I'm like this, you know. And hey, you never know what their response might be. They might completely shut you down. You really never know. But then they could be really receptive to what you have to say and want to know more. And it's about, I guess, taking every opportunity as it comes and not letting a single opportunity to talk about Jesus pass you by. Well, guys, we've come to the final message in our Whatever You Do series. We've been inspired by this verse in Colossians 3.23, where Paul says to Christians throughout time and space, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord. And we've been looking at what it means to be Christians, Christ's ambassadors, to walk with Jesus through every aspect of our lives. And in this final message, we're going to look at the whole question of ambition. Now, where I live in London, ambition is just a 
part of the scenery, really. People all around are ambitious in different ways. There are uh, a few people just struggling to get by and make ends meet. But everywhere you go in this city, there are people wanting to succeed, wanting to uh, do things well to whatever they're pursuing, whatever their understanding of success is, they're on some kind of journey and pursuit of success. They're ambitious for themselves. And there's a positive end to that, as it appears to us, where people just want to do their best or be the best version of themselves that they can be. But there's also, on full view, I would say, around London, this ugly side of ambition where people want to be the best they're pursuing, whether it's money or material wealth or success or influence or status, whatever it is, where you can see them pursuing that almost at any cost, whether it's to the detriment of themselves or people around them. You've got ambition everywhere. And do you know, it's not just London. I think the more you think about this question of ambition and this spectrum of ambition as well, this is something you find throughout history and throughout the world today. It's just a part of human nature. There is something in human beings that drives us to want to succeed and to be ambitious for ourselves. Now, if you're a Christian, you've got, uh, you've got to question this drive. You've got to try and understand what does it mean. Paul, in another letter to a church in Philippi, in chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, he warns Christians throughout time and space to avoid, uh, to beware of and to avoid selfish ambition. Now, to understand what selfish ambition, you've got to ask the question, is there a form of ambition that is selfless or that is of the kingdom, that's unselfish? And to find out, we're going to take a, a, a moment to look at a, a key point, I think, in Jesus' life and ministry. This is a short passage. It's going to be the beginning of John chapter 13. And it's no exaggeration to say that this passage has changed my life. It changed my understanding of God. It changed my understanding of the nature and character of Jesus. It changed my understanding of what God expects from me as a leader. And I actually just want to pray for a moment and ask God to speak to us as we look at this passage and to do something in our hearts to make us more like Jesus and to understand how, as Christians, we're to tackle this question of ambition. Father, I do ask you with all my heart, Lord, you've spoken to me through this passage, me personally and people that I know, not once or twice, Lord, but many, many times. And Lord, you've given us through your word this incredible opportunity to look almost like through a window at just a, a, a one moment in your life, Jesus, with your disciples, where you model something of kingdom ambition and kingdom character, Lord, the heart of God to us that we want to know and we want to emulate, Lord, and we want to see brought to life in our own lives. So as we look at this passage, Lord Jesus, you've promised to be with us when we gather together in your name. Would you speak and would you shape our hearts and help us to be more like you? In your name, amen. We're going to read it together, just the first five verses of John chapter 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus is with his disciples. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Father, again, I just ask you to speak. This is such a strange moment for us, Lord. 
but would you speak to us as we look at it? Do you know, in a book like the Bible, full of battles and miracles and all sorts of things, this passage is still one of the most powerful, affecting passages in the whole Bible for me. It has taught me so much about Jesus' heart for mankind. It's taught me so much about what kind of a ruler he is, this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And it's taught me very practically about what kind of a leader God wants me to be as well. And it is all about ambition and kingdom ambition. And I think it's a direct assault. It's a complete contradiction of the kind of selfish ambition that, that is at work in each of us in our nature and at work in the cities and countries that we live in. It's a direct assault on that. And, and in it, Jesus shows us something of the kingdom and he sets up a new paradigm for leadership, for success, for influence. He, to, he talks directly to his disciples in the same passage as you read on about how they should lead. He knows that he's going to promote them to leadership in the church. And he says in verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. It's not a lesson on personal hygiene. They were washing one, the servants would have washed people's feet in those days. This is, this is a lesson on kingdom ambition and kingdom leadership. And the same theme of this servant leadership and this ambition, this kingdom ambition, is throughout the Bible. Jesus is constantly talking about this, constantly talking about how humble uh, his leaders and the ones who are promoted in his kingdom should be. In Matthew 20, he says, when you lead people, don't lord it over them. And Peter, whose feet are washed in John chapter 13, he clearly took this message to heart. He writes in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 5, to leaders in the church, don't lord it over those who are entrusted to you. There's something in this idea of as God promotes you, as you're called into a position of influence and success, be like Jesus and serve those that you're called to lead. There's something in here for us to discover about kingdom ambition. And I want to ask you, actually this theme runs throughout the Bible, and you've got to ask, why is it so strong? Why is there such an emphasis and direct teaching on being this kind of servant leader? Well, it's because the drive in us to serve ourselves and to be ambitious for ourselves is so strong. Because you see, in separation from God in sin, right at the beginning of, the, of, the, of human history, this story of the fall in the Garden of Eden, where mankind was cut off from God and from the life of God in a way that brought spiritual death. It's not just in the abstract. It's something that each of us knows as a human being. We, we feel, as we grow up in the world, if we, if we don't know Jesus Christ, we feel completely cut off from God. We don't know that he's there. We don't know that he's a shepherd and a father who's going to provide for us and care for us. And that the deep reaction in us is to be ambitious for ourselves, to make it on our own, to fight for ourselves. How many times have you heard people say, I've got to look out for number one because no one else will. That drive is deep inside us. And, and the, the hard edge of that is that it leads us to see other people as obstacles or threats or even as tools to get us where we want to go. This thing that I'm describing is gross ambition. It's selfish ambition. And I want to tell you, God hates it. James, another one of Jesus' disciples, wrote his own letter. And in James chapter 4, he quotes a proverb from, from the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament to teach us that God opposes the proud, but shows favor, gives grace, shows favor to the humble. You see this time and time again through the Bible, this simple truth that God opposes pride in people but shows favor to humble people who don't pursue selfish ambition. You see it through the rulers of the Bible. I'll just give you a few examples, but time and time again, these great kings of the earth rise up. They find um, success and influence and power 
in the world and God opposes them time and time again. You've got Pharaoh, possibly the most famous Old Testament ruler, and the slaves of Israel rise up in the power of God. Moses rises up to lead the people of Israel out. And Moses, who, uh, Pharaoh, who sees himself as he is, the, the worldly ruler of the known world, he's, he's at the pinnacle of human leadership. In, in Exodus chapter 7 on through to chapter 12, all the gods of Egypt are shamed by the living God and Pharaoh himself has his pride and joy taken from him. He has all his um, dignity removed from him and, and ultimately he's swallowed up by the sea, eternally humbled by God. You see it with the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who stands on his rooftop one evening and looks at his kingdom as he says, this kingdom that I've built with my own hands, praising himself, full of the, the fulfillment of his ambition that I've created this kingdom for myself. And God gives him a dream and fulfills the dream by sending him a mental illness that causes him to live like an animal for seven years in the wilderness before, by God's grace, he's restored to his position of leadership and authority and given all the trappings of that kind of position back again. But this time he's been humbled and he acknowledges the Lord God, Daniel's God, who has raised him up. You see it, this is really powerful when you stop to see what's happened. In Acts chapter 12, you see Herod Agrippa, one of the kings, uh, playing the Game of Thrones in the, the days of the early church. Because he didn't give glory to God, it says in Acts 12, God took his life and he was eaten by worms. I mean, what a lesson in humility. The guy is so exalted in his own eyes, so pursue, pursuing selfish ambition and wanting to be at the top of the, the human pile. And God, God says in his word, he was, he was killed, he died, and he was eaten by worms. You, mean, you don't get more humble than that, eaten by these tiny creatures that live in the soil. These are rulers, proud rulers, selfish ambition being played out, and God opposes the proud. But it's not just rulers. It's not just the wealthy and the successful. Look at Peter, whose feet are washed in John chapter uh, 13, the passage that we read. When he first meets Jesus and realizes that this is not an ordinary man, that this could be the Messiah, there's, there's something about him. He doesn't even know then who Jesus is, but there's something powerful and pure and righteous about this man. Jesus, Peter cowers in his boat and he says, get away from me, Lord, because I'm an unclean man. He's humble in the presence of Jesus. But just... A little while later, spending time with Jesus, seeing the crowds around Jesus, being counted as one of not just the 12, but one of the three, Peter, James and John, often taking the Mount of Transfiguration, Jairus' daughter, often being this privileged position alongside Jesus. And Peter starts to get puffed up and he opposes Jesus when Jesus says he's going to go to the cross. He says when he realises Jesus is going to die, he says, Lord, I will die with you as well. And in his pride, God has to humble him and Peter, we know, he betrays Jesus, he flees, he runs away, he's humbled. And in, his hum in, in having been humbled, Jesus restores him and allows him to be one of the leaders in the church. We need to see ourselves in these stories. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and shows favor to the humble. If you belong to God, I want to tell you, God will humble you when you become proud. He'll do it in love because he loves you, he will humble you. It's like Hebrews 12 discipline. He's your father. He won't allow you to be puffed up and proud. And it may be that you're going through something right now that, that is humbling you, making you feel less than you did, less confident of yourself. Well, maybe that's God's love to you. And if you don't belong to God, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're not a follower of Christ, you need to know God will humble you as well. In Philippians 2, again, an incredible chapter to read just about Jesus' heart again. Um, that, that being in very nature God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing. He took on the likeness of a servant. This thing about his heart 
it says that when he's revealed and comes back at the end of time, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will humble yourself before Jesus when he returns, but in his grace and mercy, he calls you to humble yourself now. Choose him, choose humility. This is how you do it. The, the, a very simple a practical way to work this out day after day, and you'll all know this, whoever you are. When you least feel like being humble, when you want to grasp for something for yourself, you want to assert yourself, you want to say to people, hey, what about me? When you feel that drive in you, those are the moments to choose humility and to, to take a step back, to be quiet, to call on God to, for help and to allow others to uh, move ahead of you. You will know those moments where, you, where the drive in you is strong, for selfish ambition. In those moments when you choose humility, it will grow in you. For some of us, again, if you don't know him, what this means for you today is accepting that you do need him. And I, and I urge you to call on him today. Call on God, call on Jesus. The Bible will give you a million reasons why you need him, but the main one is that you, you might have life in him and know God for yourself. You won't, you won't attain righteousness. You won't attain God by yourself. You need Jesus. You need to call on him. But for others of us who are following Jesus, it might be the recognition that we're still chasing the wrong things, chasing status or influence, even within the church, chasing material wealth and security. We need to stop with that because we're actually chasing the wind and, and ultimately... We're not trusting God, our Father, to provide for us where he said he would. We need to recognize our limitations. And the Bible is great for that. Even throughout the Bible, constant reminders about the weakness and frailty of man. And one of my favorites, repeatedly the Bible tells us that we're like grass. Generations rise and fall. There is no strength in us on our own. So what does that mean for Christians? Should we reject any kind of wealth, worldly promotion or worldly success? Should we just burrow away and disappear? No, not at all. Jesus, again, in John chapter 13, he shows us a better way. And that way starts with a grateful acceptance of the position that God has given us. We need to see that God is so careful in the word. He, he chooses his word so carefully. And we've got to see that before Jesus takes off his outer robe, wraps it around himself like a towel, fills a bowl of water, all those practical details are there to tell you this is not a metaphor. He got on his knees and he washed his disciples' muddy feet. But you've got to see that before that, is this incredible statement in verse 3 that Jesus knew that God his Father had placed all things under his power. Ephesians 1 says he's even uh, placed all things. The Father has placed all things at Jesus' feet. And you've got to see that Jesus makes this choice to serve his disciples knowing and accepting that he, his place is, the, is to be the highest of all highs, to be the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Again, Philippians 2, Jesus being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. That would be selfish ambition. But instead, he took on the nature of a servant. He made himself nothing, it says in Philippians 2. And you see that played out here in John 13, where you expect Jesus, knowing that the Father had placed all things in his power, all things at his feet, asked his disciples to wash his feet. He, he doesn't do that. He makes himself nothing again. And he calls his disciples and calls us to live in the same way. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that the power and authority of all of heaven and earth was given to him. He didn't reject it, but he didn't grasp for it. He does two things. He accepts and he recognizes and accepts the place that God his Father has given him on the earth and secure in that place. He doesn't exert any effort to grab it. He trusts that God will make that known. You see this even fulfilled on the cross where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus trusts the Father 
with all of his promotion, success, literally his raising up, he's going to be raised from the dead, and secure in that place, he chooses to love and serve those around him. It's only possible because he knows the Father's love and he's confident of the Father's love, that the Father will raise him up. And in that, he can, he can humble himself and choose to serve those around him. Now, his example is the very brightest and best in the Bible. It's the one that most connects with us because it's through his humility, through his death on the cross, his blood, his body, Hebrews 10 says, that we can boldly approach God. We can know God as our Father, ourselves. Everything I have in Christ, everything I have in God and in life, I have through Jesus' humility and his sacrifice and what he gave for me. His is the brightest and best example. But again, when you start to see this pattern of God's heart and, and this rejection of selfish ambition, you see it throughout the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament. You see Joseph, again, loved by God, but proud early on in his life, humbled by God, put into prison and ultimately exalted to become like second in command of Egypt. He doesn't reject that position. He doesn't think it's tainted or poisonous. Instead, he saves his own nation and the nation of Egypt by serving others, by rejecting selfish ambition, but accepting the high place that God's given him. You see it in Daniel, who is humbled in exile to Babylon. He's a Jewish guy, bright guy as well. He's a slave in Babylon, but he humbles himself. God exalts him to be like prime minister for three generations, three different regimes. Um, kings come and go. They keep him in place. God keeps him in place. He doesn't reject that position of power and wealth and authority. He just serves God in it. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as one serving the Lord. These, this is Born out by Joseph in his high place, Daniel in his high place. King David is one of the greatest examples of a guy humbled in weakness, ignored by his dad, actually rejected through his life by Saul, his surrogate father, rejected by his wife, rejected by his followers when he got things wrong as well, rejected by his son Absalom. David was constantly humbled, but he accepted his high place as king of Israel. He knew that God had exalted him. He, he was amazed by it. What is man that you're mindful of? Who am I that you've exalted me so high? But he doesn't reject that high place. He chooses whatever he's doing to work at it with all his heart and serve God. You even see it in the New Testament. You see Paul and Peter and James and John, these guys who were, who were leaders, huge influence in the church and beyond. And you see the, the wealthy and the people of uh, political power and, and wealth and the centurion and all these people not called to lose and leave behind their high place. Just called not to strive selfishly for, for their own ambition. But wherever they are and whatever they do and whatever God has called them to do, they, they accept it. They gratefully accept their position, whether low or high, whether little or large. And it's the same thing in this message, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, whoever you are, wherever you are, do it. Work at what God gives you with all your heart. It's true of them and it's true of us. You know, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 26, there's this message that, that God has purpose for our lives as Christians. It says that he has chosen the very places and times that we would live because he wants, very simply in Acts 17, he wants people to come to know him through the church. He, he wants people to find God in us and amongst us. And it reminds me of um, Esther's story. If you read the book of Esther, you'll find this uh, young Israelite woman exalted to be the queen, um, King Xerxes' queen, and, and the most beautiful in all the land, the highest position of any woman in the land. And her uncle Mordecai says to her, when uh, the fate of Israel is at stake, that the Israelites are going to be murdered, he says to her, perhaps God exalted you to this place. God raised you up. God gave you this position for such a time as this. I want to tell you, if you're a Christian, 
when you read Acts 17 and John 13 and Colossians 3.23, you need to know there is no perhaps in your life. God has very intentionally called you to the, the place that you're in right now. Now, he may raise you up. He may bring you low. He will do it with love. The, the beginning of kingdom ambition is to gratefully accept the position that God has given you. Not, not uh, passively, but knowing that he has purpose in it and he has kingdom purpose for you. He has a plan. This stuff from the Old Testament, again, Jeremiah 29, he has a plan for you to, to give you a future and a hope, to prosper you, to bless you and not to harm you. That your future is in his hands, not your own. So you're not to grasp for selfish ambition, but you are to accept your position in life. Now, it sounds like it's a calling to be passive, but I want to share one final thing, which I believe is the key and the truth about kingdom ambition and godly ambition. And it's very simply this. Kingdom ambition and godly ambition is ambition for other people. It's as simple and as safe as that. The minute we start dreaming of success and status and influence for ourselves, even if we think it's so that we can be an ambassador for the gospel or we can you're starting to get caught in that drive again that's within you that says fight for yourself, make a way for yourself. It doesn't believe Jesus in Luke 12, 32 where he says, fear not little flock, your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. It doesn't believe the Bible where it says that you have all things because God didn't spare his only son but gave him up for you. There's something in any form of wanting to assert ourselves and push ourselves forward and chase status and influence, any form of ambition for ourselves is likely to lead us into a blind kind of corruption. I want to tell you the safest kingdom ambition is simply to be ambitious, to take that ambition out of yourself and be completely ambitious for other people. This is Jesus' model in John 13. But it's not just in John 13. It's the whole reason he came. You read in John 17, his prayer, that he came to raise people like me up from the dust and ashes of our lives, what they were, to raise us up, to give us purpose and influence and to make us carriers of life and light and truth to other people. You see it in John uh, 10.10 where he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I've come for them that they may have life and abundant life and life to the full. You see it in John 14 and 12 where he says to his disciples, whoever believes in me will do the things I do and even greater things. You'll have greater ministry success on earth than me because I'm going to the Father. You see it in the heart of Jesus. All of his ambition was not for himself because he knew who he was. He knew how God had raised him up and would raise him up. All of his ambition was for other people. And I want to tell you that the only time Christians have ever got ambition right throughout church history, throughout the Bible, is when they've been ambitious for other people. It's a really practical test day by day. Are you loving God and are you loving your neighbor as yourself? The um, the things you might want for yourself, are you willing to pray for them for the person next to you? Even if you don't like them very much. If if it's your church, I I learned this early on in um, Kingston when we opened our congregation in Kingston and very quickly God said to me, I am big, I'm strong, I'm your father and anything you're asking for yourself, I can do it for them as well. And, And it took us on a journey of now five years of praying weekly for all the other churches in Kingston, in, in our town. And, and in the last year, our prayers have changed again, public prayers. Not just, Lord, bless them as you bless us. We're saying, Lord, if, if you want to, bless the other churches more than us. And I can tell you honestly, our, our ambition for the church in Kingston is not for everyday church in Kingston. It's for Jesus' church. We've started to pray things like, God, if you want us to be the least of churches in Kingston, we, we will praise you that your life and favour are on us. 
We'll praise you, Lord. If we have the humblest seat at the feast that is the church in Kingston, if we have the lowliest, smallest seat, you remember the Bible tells you not to try and take the highest seat because maybe the master, if you, if you go to a feast, you go to a meal, don't take the best seat because maybe the master will humble you and ask you to take a lowlier seat. Instead, take the lowest seat and maybe the master of the feast will ask you to take a higher seat. Well, we've been praying that as a congregation. Lord, bless the other churches in Kingston. And if you want to bless them more than us, then do it with all your heart. And Lord, if ours is to be the smallest seat, the lowliest seat amongst all the churches in Kingston, then praise you that we get to sit at this amazing table. We get to be part of your plans. I'll tell you again, the only kingdom ambition is to be ambitious for other people. And perhaps God will raise you up. Perhaps he'll give you influence. But if he doesn't, you'll be content knowing him and knowing that you have power in him. Because, you know, this ambition for others, it doesn't rest on our own strength and what we can do for them. It rests on the fact that we have access to all the power and resource of heaven for those around us, whether they're in the church or outside. Paul says, do good to all people, but especially the household of God. As we close, I'm going to pray. I just want to ask you to imagine a church, Christians. Imagine a church where there is genuinely no status, where those who are called to lead don't lord it over other people, but genuinely don't consider this, this status or influence in the church something to be grasped, but we make ourselves nothing as leaders and elders and deacons. We make ourselves nothing and we see ourselves for the servants that God has called us to be. There's no status. Imagine a church where there is no striving to try and become something bigger or better than we are today, but instead we trust God that he will raise us up. And we are ambitious for others, that they would be bigger and better in God, that their faith would be stronger, their love would be stronger. Imagine a church where there is no selfishness at all, where we don't look to our own needs, but each looks to the needs of those around him. I, I say imagine a church, but that is the church that Jesus he began. It's the church that Jesus dreamt of before he came to earth and died on the cross and rose again. And it is the church that he will return to receive. It's the church that we're part of. I want to say the mission of the church is not that we build a bigger and better church. It is that we work with all our heart and all our faith to build the people around us to be all that they can in Jesus. I'm going to pray. I want to invite you as I pray for the church and I pray for us as Christians. If you don't know him, I want to say to you that whatever ambition you might have had for yourself is nothing. It's like shadows and rust and rubbish compared to the plans that God has for you. And if you'll put your trust in him today, if you'll call on the name of Jesus and ask him to raise you up, wherever you are, whatever hole you find yourself in, he will raise you up. He'll give you purpose and he'll bless you. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to do such a work in your church, Lord, that gently, ever so gently, Lord, and with great love and power, you would remove every trace of selfish ambition from us, Lord, from our church, from the churches that we're connected with, Lord. And in fact, all the churches across the world, we're connected by your spirit, your love, your blood. Father, we ask you in our generation, remove selfish ambition from every heart. Lord, help us to live this pure life, whatever we do, wherever we are, whether we have high station in the eyes of the world or low station. Lord, there's, there's this great equalizer that with all the resource of heaven and all the love of God, whatever position the world sees us in, Lord, we can be successful, faithful, and committed to the most excellent way of love as we seek to bless and love those around us, as we seek to be ambitious for them 
and not for ourselves. Would you help us in Jesus' name? Amen.